But the only thing that helped me in the back of him was a sign, Big Bubba's Air Conditioning and Heating. And I thought I was listening to some TV evangelist speaking in tongues. But Jerry, I got a question for you about Alabama. I've heard this many times, and you would know better than I if it's true. I heard there's three million people in Alabama and only 3,000 last names. God, forgive me for that. How many mothers are here this morning? Raise your hands. Don't ever, ever stop praying for your children. I had a little four foot eleven Italian mother. When she prayed, I think the devil would bury his head in the sand like an ostrich. She was a prayer warrior. In fact, I really believe if it wasn't for her, I wouldn't be able to stand here this morning. My mother used to pray and pray and pray. And I said, Mom, when are you going to stop praying? She said, until. I said, until what? She said, until God answers my prayer. My mother waited almost 40 years for God to answer her prayers for me. And some of us won't even pray 40 minutes. And we'll give up. And if a God don't answer our prayer, we'll go to something else. Now, I don't know if all of you believe in miracles or if all of you have never seen a miracle, but you're going to see one in the next 35 minutes. I've been given 35 minutes to share 23 years of my life, which normally takes 90 minutes. So you're going to witness a miracle this morning. <laughs> I was raised in a house where I didn't receive much love. My mother and father were married. They were teenagers. Neither one of them had any form of education. Uh, my father would take any job that came along. He usually had two jobs, sometimes even a third job on the weekend, just to meet maintenance week. Uh, if you recognize my southern accent, I'm from South Brooklyn. And I noticed my father didn't do all the things the other fathers in the neighborhood did. I'd see them walking down the streets with their arms around their sons, taking them to ball games, taking them fishing. My father never did any of those things with me. He would come home from one of his many jobs, sit down, eat, and begin to drink. My father was an alcoholic. When my father got good and drunk, he got good and violent, although he never raised his voice or his hands to my sister or my mother. He had to have some release for that violence, and I was the release. I didn't have to do anything wrong, say anything wrong. I just had to be in the same house with him. And he dragged me in the room and beat me with a leather belt. And that, back in those days, it was a leather belt that used to sharpen straight edge razors. And he would beat me until I started crying really, really hard. And then he would just walk out, not say a word. Well, at 10 years old, I made a promise to myself. If my father couldn't show me the love that fathers are supposed to show their sons, I would never let my father see me cry ever again. And the next time he came into the room to beat me with that big leather strap, he was a big husky man. I was a little kid. It took everything in me to hold those tears back. But as the weeks, months, and years went by, my heart became so hard and at times when I wanted to cry, I couldn't cry. And I began hating my father, hating him to the point where many nights I wait till he fell asleep and I thought about going in the kitchen, getting a knife, and just slitting his throat. This is how much I had hated him for not showing me the love that I needed from my father. When I was about 15 years old, I was coming home from school, taking a shortcut, crossing some railroad tracks. I saw the handle of a gun buried in the rocks. I pulled the gun out. It was an old gun. It was rusty. It had no bullets in it. 
And I showed it to two of my friends, and I came up with an idea. I said, if we cover our faces so nobody knows who we are, we can go around with this gun I said, and rob people and get money. They're not going to look to see if there's bullets in or not. And at first they said no, but I kept persisting and teasing them, making fun of them, and finally they gave in. I picked this one storefront because every day when I came home from school, I'd see all these fancy cars parked outside, and you'd see these men with expensive suits and going in there. So I figured, hey, these guys got pockets full of money. We went in there, there's about 25 or 30 men, just three of us. I pulled a gun out, I told everybody to stand up. I told them, empty their pockets out of any money on the table. And I told my two friends to go around and collect the money. As they were collecting the money, I thought to myself, there's 25, 30 men and three of us, when we leave, they're going to chase us. So I came up with another idea. After we got all their money, I made them all take their pants off and we took their pants. Got outside, ran away about two blocks later. We dropped their pants, got on a train, and went to a place called Coney Island. Spent every penny we had going on all the rides and eating all the food you're not supposed to eat. We were nervous when we first did it, but we were laughing so much, we went back three more times. One night, I was sitting at home at the dinner table with my mother and father. There was a knock on the door. My father opened the door, and three men were there. And it wasn't the three wise men. It was the three wise guys. And they began speaking in Sicilian to my father, and he said, we must come in and speak with you and your son. It's important. And my father flew into rage. He said, I told you men never to come anywhere near my family, and I'll leave right now. And they said, if we leave right now, your son will be dead by the morning. My father let them in. A man came up to me, put his finger in my face. He said, the only reason you're still alive is because the respect I have for your grandfather. And both my grandfathers and mother's father's side died 20 years before I was born. But he said, if you come in there one more time with that gun, even the respect I have for your grandfather, you'll be dead. Turned around, walked out. My father gave me the worst beating he ever, ever gave me. I still didn't cry, and he was too tired to hit me anymore. I said, who was my grandfather? What was my grandfather? That they can respect somebody, that he's been dead for so many years. And my father said, all you need to know about him is he's dead. And if I ever see you near these men again, he said, I'll kill you myself. You stay away from these men. But I didn't respect my father. I didn't listen to my father. The very next day, I went right back to that storefront. I saw the man who was sitting there. And I walked up to him and I said, the man you tell me who my grandfather is, if you're keeping me alive because respect you have him, he's, my father won't tell me. Unknown to me at the time, this man's name was Carlo Gambino. <laughs> and he told me my father was a man, my grandfather was a man they used to call Joe, the boss, Joe Masseria. He's one of the men that actually brought what we now know as the mafia into this country. Uh, there is no such Italian word, mafia. Uh, two words, mafia, which means my daughter. And I don't know anybody want to join a gang called my daughter's gang. <laughs> the real name is La Casa Nostra. There's really no American translation. It's this thing, our thing, this thing of ours. And they told me he was one of the most wealthiest and violent mafia bosses they ever had. And in the tradition of the mafia, he didn't retire and get a going away party and, and go watch. Uh, they killed him. This is how you take over. You don't wait for the boss to get old and die. You kill him and you take over. Uh, he told me that Lucky Luciano was the man who killed my grandfather. I wasn't impressed by any of this stuff because here I was a 15-year-old kid with a gun with no bullets and I robbed them three different times. But what I really I heard, I finally had something that I can get back and hurt my father but like I never had before. My father did everything he possibly could to keep me away from this lifestyle. And I thought, I said, the worst thing I could ever do to my father is become involved in this. And I told Carlo Gambino, I said, my father doesn't want any part of this, but I'm his only son. Doesn't that put me next in line? He said, yes, it does. I said, fine, I'll take it. He said, not at 15 years old.
He said, but you remind me so much of your grandfather. And he said, my grandfather was a very violent person. You see, hurt people hurt people. And that's all I wanted to do, hurt anybody before they had a chance to hurt me. My father had hurt me enough for 25 lifetimes. But he said, if you'll do anything I ask you to do, it's all up to you how far you can go in this family. I told them I would. They started sending me out doing things. I was always known as a street fighter. I was big and strong. They sent me out to collect money from grown men. And they would tell me, whatever you have to do short of killing them, you bring our money back. And every time I went out to hurt a man because he wasn't paying, I wouldn't look directly in his face. I'd make believe it was my father. And I enjoyed hurting this man, whether I shot them in the arms or legs or stabbed them or beat them over the head with a baseball bat. I was getting even with my father. And I enjoyed this. I'd walk down the street and I'd hear people behind my back. He's cold-blooded. He's cold-hearted. And that would actually bring a smile to my face. By the time I was 17 years old, I gained the trusted position with the Gambino family. By the time I was 19 years old, I was doing my first prison sentence. You see, in the Mafia, they have something called making your bones. But there's two types of people the Mafia wants, muscle people that are a dime a dozen and earners. And years ago, you had to kill somebody to prove you were worthy to go into the Mafia, but some of the earners would get arrested and then they couldn't earn anything for anything. So they had different things. They sent me to shoot two people in Wichita, Kansas, but told me, whatever you do, don't kill either one of them. There was a hijacking in the Garmin district. They knew these men did it. They told me, just go shoot them, go to Kansas. Here's a different driver's license. They'd have computers in those days. Here's a, a plane ticket. Go there, shoot them, come right back. On the way back, the only people on the plane besides me was the police department. I was arrested. I got a five to ten year jail sentence. And I thought, how the heck did I get arrested? I thought everything, I did everything Carlo Camino told me to do. Finally, I got out on good behavior. When I came back home, I didn't know whether to go see Carlo Gambino or not because everything he asked me to do, I had done. Now he told me, go there, shoot two men and come back. And it took me a bunch of years to get back. <laughs> but he knew I was out. He sent me and I went to see him. And he said, Tom, do you have a gun on you? I said, Carlo, you know I always have a gun on me. He said, give me the gun. And I said, no. But there was a table there and I said, I'll put my gun on the table. I wanted a gun as close as possible because anybody's going to hurt me. I want to kill anybody as I could before they kill me. And he looked at me. He said, tell me about all those years in that penitentiary. I said, look at me. You see any broken bones or scars? I said, you know I could take care of myself. I survived. He said, is there any one thought you had more than any other thought all those years? I said, yeah. I said, I don't know what I did wrong that I got arrested. He said, you didn't do anything wrong. He said, we turned you in. He said, Tom, every time we went to sent you out to hurt somebody, he said, you hurt them. He said, every time we sent them to make money, he said, you made a lot of money. He said, but we had no idea what would happen if you ever got arrested. What he did, he made a deal with a judge in Wichita, Kansas. I was supposed to get a one-year sentence and be released in six months. The morning I flew to Wichita, Kansas, that judge had a major heart attack and died. I went before the judge, they had no connection with me. He just threw the book at me. But I was rewarded for being a stand-up guy. He gave me nightclubs, other people's nightclubs, other people's restaurants, and other people's construction business. And I was bringing in millions of dollars a year for the Gambino family. But all the time I was with them, there was two things that was always in the back of my mind. I didn't belong with them. I really wasn't like them. There was something inside me that I couldn't pin down that told me I didn't belong with them. And then I remember before my father threw me out of the house at 15 years old, my mother was praying and praying. She was by, by the bed with the rosary beads, just praying away like crazy. I said, Mom, what are you praying about? She said, you. I said, what are you praying about me? 
She said that you'll become a priest. And I laughed at her. I said, a priest? I said, nobody in this family's ever been a priest. Everybody's been on the Casa Nostra except my drunken father. I said, Mom, I said, every morning I wake up, I find my mother, my father in the bathtub, throwing up his, his guts. I said, Mom, I don't want to be like him. I want to be like your father. And I want to be more powerful. I want to be more wealthy. I even want to be more violent than your father ever was. I said, I don't want to hear you praying for me ever again. She bawled up a little fish. She said, you can't stop me from praying. All those men you're with, they can't stop me from praying. And I won't stop praying until. I kept making a lot of money, went back to jail again. That was part of my lifestyle. You know, you commit 100 crimes, you get busted for one. So you got to figure, hey, I got away for 99. So I'll sit in this jail for a while. But all the while, something was wrong. I got an opportunity to go to Atlanta, Georgia. There was a restaurant owner there that owed him a lot of money, and in the top of it, he wound up getting kidnapped, and they sent me down and sit with this baby, sit with this guy, and because I was involved in the restaurant, they sent me there to take over his chain of restaurants. But God had another plan. See, when plan A don't work, God's got some plan B, C, D, E's, and F all the way through the alphabet. I went to Atlanta, Georgia, thinking I was taking over this restaurant chain. And I had never, ever been involved in drugs in my life. The strongest drug I've ever taken in my life to this day is Tylenol PM. I hated drugs, hated my, well, I lived in Brooklyn, New York. If you were involved in drugs and you were walking down the street the same side as me, you walked on the other side of the street. Atlanta, Georgia, I found out this restaurant owner is involved with drugs. They have 2,200 hours of him talking to undercover FBI agents. 1,100 hours are about me. He's in the mafia. He was sent down here to kill anybody that bothers me, even FBI agents. I was sent down here to take over his business. I was arrested. I was put in the Atlanta Penitentiary. I was charged, had 16 different counts, and the judge said to me, I faced a minimum of 400 years, a minimum. Only people in the Old Testament lived that long. <laughs> and for the first time in my life, I was in prison, innocent. And I got angry at God. I actually shook my fist at God. I said, God, if I stayed, I was, I was still in the mafia because I had left. I said, here's what I would wound up in jail. I had a very, very strange experience. I woke up one Saturday morning and looked at all the material things I had, all the money I had. I didn't ever deal with Uncle Sam. I used to keep at least $250,000 cash in my house around at all times. I used to walk around with no less than $2,500 in my pocket. Woke up one Saturday morning and I said, I'm nearing my 40th birthday and I bought everything I ever wanted. If I don't have it, because I, I don't want it. I've been every place I want to go. I've done everything I want to do. What do I have left? Sit on some porch in a rocking chair just getting old? I said, I'm just going to take my life. I don't want to wait to be old. I put a gun to my head, ready to take my own life. The phone rang. Pick it up as some guy that originally from New York that lived in Atlanta. He was constantly inviting me to come to his house. He said his wife cooked the best Italian food I ever tasted. And every time I tell him, I'll call you right back. And never intends calling him back. And here he is. He's calling me. I've got the gun in one hand ready to take my life and the phone in the other hand with a dinner invitation. That's what you really call the Last Supper. <laughs> and I gave my usual answer. I'll call you back. And I put the gun down and I said, God, you underestimate me. I said, I see what you're trying to do. I said, I've been trained to read in between the lines, and no one has ever been able to con me. No one. That includes you, God. 
Because the guy said, I want you to come to our church. I know you're Italian. You must be Roman Catholic. But this is a non-denominational church. That word had too many syllables for me to even understand in those days. <laughs> I said, you want me to go to this non-denominational church so I get that you're going to kill me in front of all those people so they can see what happens to somebody like me, the lifestyle I live. I said, God, I'm not afraid of you. I'll go there anyway. I went there and I had gone to a church don't get offended, but I had gone to a church like most Catholics do every Christmas and Easter Sunday. And great big church in Brooklyn, New York, Regina Patre, about four square blocks, three, four hundred feet high. You walk inside, marble statues all over the place, stained glass window. I go to this non-denominational church, and it's in a double-wide trailer. Where I lived in Brooklyn, New York, if you left anything on the street overnight that had wheels on it, it was not there in the morning. <laughs> And here's this double-wide trailer church. Walked inside, and I looked over. There was every kind of instrument you can name in the corner. And the only thing I ever saw in the Catholic church whenever I went was this huge organ in the back of the church, and I never even heard anybody play it. But everywhere I looked, from the youngest to the oldest person there, they had this silly little grin on their face. And it just seemed to glow with happiness and everything. And I looked in the parking lot. They didn't have a Mercedes like I did. They didn't have $3,000 suits and $50,000, $60,000 worth of jewelry that I had. But these people are dirt poor. What do they got to be happy about? I said, if they only knew how wealthy I am and how poor they are, I'd be the only one smiling and they'd all be crying. But everywhere I looked, it just never stopped. I was so confused what was going on in this church. I got up and left. And I went home and I said, all my life, I was the original control freak. I was in charge of everything. Now I'm totally out of control. I have no idea what's going on in that church. Why those people who are so poor, so happy? I said, God, I can take my life anytime I want. I said, I know what's going on in that church. It's not a church. It's a front. And them people have something hidden in that church. <laughs> And, and they intentionally wear all their old clothes and bring the old car so nobody will know. I said, God, I'm going back there next week and I'm getting everything they got. <laughs> I'm still getting it to this day. Went back the next week, everything was the same. I didn't hear a word that was preached. I'm too busy looking at the floor, the walls, the ceiling. You know, where, where, where's this hidden spot? Finally, everybody left. And back then, my pastor weighed well, well over 350 pounds. And he used to stand in the doorway and shake everybody's hands. Well, if you're under 350 pounds, you stand in the doorway with a double wide, you are the doorway. <laughs> and the church could only hold about 60, 70 people. So I waited till there was nobody there. And I said, you know what? He'll get so tired of shaking hands. The minute he leaves from that door, I'm gone. But he waited for me. One way in, one way out. I went up. He shook my hand. He said, thank you for coming to our church. You can come back another time, brother. I said, I'm not your brother. Get out of my way. And he stepped aside, and when I went to walk out, he grabbed me by my arm. And I turned around, I slapped his hand off my arm, and I got right in his face. I said, don't you ever put your hands on me, and you'll only get one warning. And he says, I have something to say to you, and I hope I don't offend you. I said, you offend me, you're dead. He said, the eyes are the windows of the soul. And all the time I've looked in your eyes, all I could see was a little boy crying, wanting to be loved. He said, Jesus loves you, and I love you. I had agreed to go to Atlanta, Georgia for one year, one year only. I had one week left. All my life in the mafia, I had a reputation that I had zero weakness. And I thought I was the only one in the world who knew that little boy was still inside me, wanting my father's love more than anything in the world. My weakness. And now somebody knew I had a weakness. I made 
the choice that I was going to kill this pastor before the week was up. So nobody, again, would ever know my weakness. I started to leave. He handed me his business card. He said, you and I need to talk. Let's get together in the middle of the week. I got home. I was so mad. I was slamming doors, breaking things, throwing things around the house. I went to Atlanta, Georgia to take over a man's restaurant chain, not to kill anybody. I had never killed anybody before. I tried a million times, but it just didn't work for some reason. And now this man knew my secret, and now he's forcing me to kill him. My patience never lasted till Wednesday. I called him that night. We agreed to meet. I went there. When I drove up, I got out of the car. I took my gun out of my shoulder holster, made sure the clip was full. There was one in the chamber, put it in the shoulder holster. My plan was the minute I seen him, I was going to blow his brains out, turn around, get in the car and drive away. He didn't know my name. Nobody knew I was going there. Perfect crime. But again, God had other plans. I walked in. He was already in his office and shook his hand. He said, what's your name? And I figured, I could tell him my name. I'm going to kill him in a few seconds. Who cares if he knows my name? Turned around and walked to his desk. I went for the gun and my hand froze like a piece of steel. I couldn't move my fingers, my arm, my shoulder, nothing. I thought I came down with a stroke. And I was desperately trying to get the gun so I could shoot him and kill him and get to a hospital to see what was wrong with my arm. <laughs> and he sat down and saw, saw me. He's Tom, he looked nervous. Why don't you sit down? I'm thinking, if he only knew what I'm going to do, he's, he'll be nervous to get up and run out. But when I sat down, my jacket opened up and I could see the gun in my hand and I couldn't reach it. He didn't waste any time at all. He said, Tom, if you died right now, do you know where you're going? I said, yeah. He said, where? I said, well, not right away, but eventually heaven. He said, uh, you say that with confidence. Where do you get that confidence? I said, when I was one month old, my mother and father brought me to the Catholic church and the Catholic priest sprinkled me some of that holy water and, hey, I'm going to heaven. He said, oh, then you must be born again. I said, born what? I said, Pastor, you better take a look at me. I said, I'm six foot two. I'm under 200 pounds. I said, how do I crawl back in my mother's womb and come back out again without killing the both of us? What are you talking about born again? And he opened up the Bible. I thought a Bible was something that Christians just put on a shelf. But he opened it up and he went to the book of John, the third chapter, the third verse. He said, Tom. In John 3 and 3, the Word of God says, In order to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must be saved. I said, all right, you got the book with all the answers. How do I do that? He said, Romans 10, 9, If you'll confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised from the dead, you shall be saved or born again. And then he said, How would you like to join our church? And I said, Pastor, I said, I'm the worst sinner you'll ever meet. You don't want me in your church. He said, Tom, he said, The Bible says, All, all have sinned. He said, everybody in this church, including me at one time, was sinners. You're welcome in the church. I said, you don't understand my sins. I went back as far as I could trying to tell him not only the things that I did, but the things I thought about doing and didn't do. And I hadn't cried in 30 years. All of a sudden, my eyes were closed. I opened my eyes. I wasn't sitting in the chair anymore. I was on my knees in that small little office for the first time in 30 years, crying like a little baby. I couldn't stop crying. The tears were coming down my face. My, my shirt was soaking wet. And I looked at the, up at the desk. The pastor was gone. I looked, and he was on his knees next to me. And he had tears. I said, what are you crying about? He said, don't you know what just happened? I said, yeah, I came in like a tough guy. And I said, I just made a fool of myself. Let me get up and get out. And he grabbed me with two hands. But this time I didn't push him away because when I looked into this man's eyes, I could see that this man had something not only that I didn't have, but something that I desperately needed. And at the time, I don't know what it was. He said, Tom, he said, you just opened up a door in your heart to let Jesus in. He said, please don't leave here without letting me lead you in a sinner's prayer. I said, there you go, born again, sinner's prayer. Where are you getting all this stuff? He said, well, you won't find the sinner's prayer in the Bible, but I'm going to say a prayer. And he said, you 
Repeat it after me. And every time he said something, I repeated, I could actually feel all the years of rejection, the braids, the pain, the anger, slowly fading away. And by the time I finished, it was all gone. This was May of 1984, but I remember it like it happened this morning. He put his arms around me and said, Tom, old things are in the past. You are now a new creation in Christ. I not only heard the word new, but in my heart I realized, okay, that void in my life all those years wasn't religion. Religion will bring you straight to hell faster than anything else you could ever get involved in. What was missing in my life was a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And now that I invited Jesus Christ into my heart, nothing and nobody could ever take him away from me. I told the pastor, I said, I've got a bunch of things I've got to do. You better get my funeral service ready. He said, what are you talking about? I said, I'm calling up Paul Castellano and telling him I quit. And I said, I make too much money for them. They'll kill me. He said, Tom, first of all, I don't believe God would save you just so uh, somebody can kill you. And second of all, if they do kill you, at least now you know you're going to heaven. Gee, thanks, Pastor. You know. <laughs> nice encouragement, Pastor. You know. I called up Paul Castellano and said, I'm not coming back. He said, that's all right. Whatever you got going in, in, in Atlanta, keep it going. What do you want me to do? Send your crew down there. How do you want me to handle your money? I suppose you understand. I said, I've accepted Jesus in my life. I can't live that life anymore. I said, I'm a new Tom Papania. The old Tom Papania's dead. And he said, Tom, there's one way in, that's feet first, and there's one way out, and that's in the coffin. And he said, if you're serious, he said, I'm going to have to go and order that coffin. And I said, Paul, I said, I don't know if you read the Bible, but John 8, 36 says, when the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. Paul, do whatever you want to do. I'm free. He put a contract out on my life. They tried to kill me a few different times, but God's angels were protecting me each time. Um, in fact... He put a contract out on me in 1984, and in 1985, John Gotti killed him. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that God killed Paul Castellano for me, but the Bible says you reap what you sow. He lived a very violent life. He died a very violent death. But two scriptures came to pass. John 8, 36, when the sun sets you free, you're free indeed. He was the only one I answered to. When he died, every connection I had to that family died. Isaiah 54, no weapon formed against me shall prosper. When he died, the contract army died also. Totally free from a lifestyle most people will tell you that you can't get free from. And that's partially true. You can't do it on your own. The Witness Protection Program definitely can't do it. But I serve a God who does things when things become impossible. Totally free from that lifestyle. But my lifestyle caught up with me. I was sent to the Atlanta Penitentiary. And our government has a sick, sick sense of humor. The three men who took the contract to kill me was found out, and they put him in the three cells next to me. We're in maximum security on the fifth floor. No guards come up there. The doors just open up for an hour each morning, and you go take a shower and exercise. And here I am facing the three men that I read in an indictment try to kill me on numerous occasions. I wasn't exactly excited over it. <laughs> And I looked at them, they looked at me, and they went right back in their cells. And I said, God, I said, I'm looking at a minimum of 400 years for crimes I didn't commit. I said, tomorrow morning when these doors open, I'm going to kill these three men. Then I'll know why I'm in prison for 400 years. <laughs> but again, God had other plans. The next morning when the doors opened up, three men came out, and one of the men who I knew very well, he was a hired killer, killed many, many people. He said, I'm not afraid of you anymore. He said, your whole face has changed. Your voice has changed. 
what has happened to you? I said, Jesus has happened to me. I said, I accept into my life. He forgave all my sins and everything. Within the next 20 minutes, all three men were on their knees and I was leading them to Christ. God had another plan. Praise God. I was incarcerated 11 and a half months. The trial lasted about two and a half, three months. They said it was a long, as long as trial. I was charged with crimes I never, ever committed. The government had spent $8 million bringing me to, to court and everything like that. Um, when they brought me to court, there would be three motorcycles in front, me in a van shackled like I was Godzilla or something, three motorcycles behind me, and a helicopter flying to confine the court because I was afraid the mafia was going to break me loose. Somebody was watching too many mafia movies. <laughs> Charged with all kinds of crimes, false crimes, this and that. And again, I lost faith in God. Because here I was in jail the first time, innocent. But I prayed that night and God said, you know you're innocent and I know you're innocent. I will not let them find you guilty no matter how many witnesses. I had 57 witnesses against me. Finally, at the end of the trial, everybody else was found guilty of all the crimes. I was found innocent of every single charge. I had a Jewish atheist attorney. I had ran out of money. I had to, I had to take a, a public defender. Uh, he's still Jewish, but he's no longer an atheist. <laughs> and most of the time, if in Atlanta, Georgia, he comes to hear me speak. God worked miracles in that courtroom. Got out of prison, went back to church, lost every single thing I had. I had given everything away I had when I got saved because God said to me, I want you to get rid of anything you didn't work for. I said, God, that's everything. <laughs> He said, give it away, and I'd go to a different church at night, take off my Rolex watch, drop it in that little velvet bag when they take an offering, and take it with this and that, and get out quick, because I said, oh, I'm going to say, hey, I dropped my watch, let me get it back. And here, for the second time in my life, I had nothing but the clothes on my back, I was arrested. Somebody in the church took me in, they said, you can stay there anytime you want. I wound up getting a job in, in, uh, with a Christian company, and this is really funny. If you look under the dictionary, street people or street person, you might see my picture next to it. So where does a kid from Brooklyn, New York, who was born and raised on the streets, get a job in Atlanta, Georgia? At a dairy farm. <laughs> I thought milk only came in the cardboard containers and in, in the refrigerator. Like, so I don't know anything about udders and three-legged stools. God's got a sense of humor. I worked there. Did very good, but then God had spoke to me and said, I don't want you working at that dairy. I said, God, I'm making innocent money for the first time in my life. I'm even paying taxes, God. <laughs> he said, I want you in ministry. I said, God, I've always been a loner. I said, I'm not a speaker and everything. He said, that's perfect. Then it won't be you doing it. It'll be me doing it through you. I said, God, what do you want me to call this ministry? He said, what will you say by I said, God, I was saved by your grace. He said, call it God Saving Grace Ministries. For the past 20-something years, I've been ministering to single-family households. 68% of the United States is single-family household. A boy can make a baby, but it takes a man to be a father. And helping these people, helping them with affordable rent, helping them with, with cars, daycare, food, Clothing, medical things, going into all the prisons, the youth detention centers, pen prisons, penitentiaries, setting up systems outside. When a man gets out, everybody thinks when a man's in prison or a woman's in prison, that's when they need most help. Baloney. They got everything provided for them in there. It's when they get out that they need most help. 
If they need a job, most in Atlanta, Georgia, the, uh, the average age of uh, literacy or school is the fifth grade. How are you going to get a job with a fifth grade education? I have mostly in the construction trade, electricians, plumbers, brick masons, roofers, framers coming in, training these guys, and then giving them work. And do you know what? Half of these people that come in are not even Christian. Not even Christians. They come in and train these men. We've been doing this for so many years. Now let me share something about my mother because I'm getting close. My mother prayed for me to become a priest. I had a doctor call me up in 1986, two years after I got saved, who I had known very, very well because we lived on Toad Hill Road, which is a very exclusive section in Staten Island. He was my neighbor. He told me something I didn't know. He had been my mother's doctor for over 15 years, and my father told him, don't ever tell his, his son. He said, but I'm breaking that promise. He said, your mother's dying of cancer. He said, I've already took both her breasts off, the lymph glands, and I don't think she's going to make it another week. I'm breaking that promise so you can see her one last time. I went to the hospital to see my mother. I remember my mother being four foot eleven, about 160 pounds, the bun in the hair and the wooden spoon to stir the pasta. And here was my mother lying in a bed about 65, 70 pounds. She looked like a skeleton with just one thin layer of skin pulled over her. My heart broke to think this is how I was going to see my mother for the last time. But when I walked into the room, she looked up at me. She said, son, don't cry. I said, mom, I've changed. She said, oh, I know. I said, mom, I'm not in a mafia anymore. She said, I know. I said, Mom, I'm not even a Catholic anymore. She said, I know. <laughs> I said, Mom, how do you know these things? She said, Son, when I look into your eyes, all I could see is Jesus. I don't, I don't have to pray for you anymore. Again, plan B. My mother didn't die in a week, two weeks. She lived 18 months after that, was released from the hospital. <laughs> and saw her son as the priest she prayed him to be. Not a Catholic priest. The Bible says we're a royal priesthood. And my mother saw her son. Her prayers answered for her. Now I'm going to ask you the most important question in your entire life in the next couple of seconds. It's a matter of life or death. You know, there's many, many choices in life. Every one of you made a choice whether you're going to come here this morning, whether you're going to host, whether you're going to red tie, a green tie, a suit, not a suit. Many, many, many choices in life, but there's only two choices for eternity. Heaven or hell. And it's only your choice to make. Nobody else can make it for you. It's yours alone. Now, I know some of you are sitting here this morning and say, Tom, you know, uh, I didn't do anything that you ever did. I don't I even thought about doing anything you did. Tom, I'm a good person. Ask my wife, ask my husband, ask my children, ask my neighbors, ask all my business associates. I don't do anything but say nice things and do nice things. Tom, I'm a good person. Well, if you do all those things, I'd have to agree with you, but there's something drastically wrong. Good people don't go to heaven. John 3 and 3 does not say in order at the kingdom of heaven you have to be good. does not say in order to have the kingdom of good you've got to be Protestant, Catholic, Muslim, Jew. It doesn't say that. It only says one thing and one thing only. In order at the kingdom of heaven, you have to be born again. How do you do that? 
Romans 10, 9, confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is the Son of God. I like every head bowed and every eye closed, if you would. Normally I do this different. I have people stand and come forward, but we don't want to embarrass anybody because we have all different groups of people this morning. So would you just show me just the respect of just bowing your head and closing your eyes, and I'm going to ask you a question. And you can't even lie about this question because two reasons. God already knows. And number two, you can't lie to yourself. If your name is Bill, you can't say your name is George. You know it's Bill. The only thing that will stop you from telling the truth this morning is the devil putting something in your ear. And he's come to rob, kill, steal, and destroy you. Here's the question. How many of you right now, if you were to die, are not absolutely 100% sure you'd go to heaven? Raise your hand. If you are not absolutely sure, if you died right now, that you, you would not go to heaven, just raise your hand. Praise God. Praise God. Thank you, man. Thank you, sir. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. There's hands all over the place. Now, here's what I'm going to do. I want to lead everybody in this prayer. Then I'm going to turn it back over to Jerry. But I want to lead everybody in this prayer. So if everybody would just please say this prayer after me. Heavenly Father, I'm a sinner. And I confess my sins to you. And I repent of my sins, asking you to forgive me. I believe that Jesus was born of a virgin, was crucified and died to sit at the right hand of God. With this confession of faith, I invite you, Jesus Christ, into my heart, not only as my Savior, but as the Lord of my life. Thank you, Jesus for forgiving me of all my sins. Amen. For those of you that said that prayer, I, I welcome you to the family of God. Um, Jerry, I think I've gone about five minutes over, which is another miracle for me. Because you, know you know what happens when a preacher looks at his watch? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this edition of Faith at Work. We hope you enjoyed it. I'm Carl Grant. Please follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash faith at work radio. And for more information on the high tech prayer breakfast, please visit www.hightechprayerbreakfast.org. You've been listening to faith at work with Carl Grant. 